the Sabbath year, every seventh year, but now the bulk of chapter 25 deals with another very special year and some of the provisions of that year. There are several passages that talk about the Sabbath year, but there are fewer that give this kind of detail. In fact, no other that gives this kind of detail about this other very special year. And uh, there's just a lot of interesting features of this and a lot of interesting principles behind this. So, to begin with, would somebody read 8 to 12? You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound the ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth, nor, sh- nor gather from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy f- to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. Alright, you have this special jubilee year. When was it? So that would be after how many sabbatical years? Seven. So after after every seven sevens, you're to have the jubilee year. There is a considerable debate among the scholars on a point that I'll tell you what the debate is and tell you my opinion. There's a debate about whether or not it was overlapping with the seventh sabbatical year, or that would be essentially the 49th year or whether or not it was the 50th year itself to where you would have two years in which they didn't sow nor reap in a row. We make this 7, 14, 21, 28, 35, 42, 49, and then 50 as the Jubilee year, you've got two years back to back that you don't sow or reap. I believe that's what the text is saying. I think this is a year added on that's another Sabbath year with a whole lot of other provisions or or that is, it is actually the 50th year uh, as the Jubilee year. There's lots of issues and ramifications in that, but it seems to me like that's what the text is actually saying here. You count off to the 49th and then the next year is your Jubilee year. So this is kind of a general section. This is kind of a almost kind of the introduction to this, gives you the basic parameters. Now, the rest of the chapter is going to fill out a lot of details about exactly what you're supposed to do on the Jubilee year. But essentially, it's a year in which you proclaim a release to the land and its inhabitants, and in which you give the land another Sabbath year. Comments and questions? Why do you I think that, because I think that's really what he's saying, say, um, in verse uh, 11, you shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. And uh, that, you know, it's kind of redundant to say, don't sow or reap if it's still a sabbatical year. It looks to me like he's, he's saying that. Also, there's going to be a section a little bit later where I think 
the idea in like 20 to 22 is the idea of two years in a row of rest so it would be three years later when you get the crops um, both of those passages and particularly in 21 and in uh, 11 it seems to me like the text is really saying this is the 50th year and there's two Sabbath years in a row uh, I may be wrong about that I wouldn't be dogmatic but it does it looks to me like that's what the language is really saying um I'm not good at presenting the other sides, uh, but they, they overlap them. Uh, some of them even say that there is a special short year, like just a part of the Sabbath year is then the Jubilee. And I think part of that comes from it starting uh, with the ram's horn on the seventh month. Perhaps the rest of the, that Sabbath year is really the Jubilee year or something along that line. But I'm never good at explaining their view because I don't take it so. Sorry, it seems like verse 21 is pretty clear that they're going to yeah. gather in on the sixth year for three years. And even in 22 where it speaks about the ninth year it should be the eighth year if it was just that one seventh year Sabbath year. Um, so it just seems to me like that's what the text is saying in those passages. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of difference to me other than it really is even a greater test of their faith uh, to, you know, <laughs> man, you go two years with no planning or reaping. That's even a tougher thing to do, I would think. And, and more of a test of, you know, greed and things like that. What did you say about verse 22? Well, the t- verse 22 mentions the ninth year. Uh, Does it in the ESV? Oh, okay. And I have the ESV. The end of the verse. The end of the verse. Yeah. Does verse 22 and the end of it mention the ninth year? Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine the trumpet sound every 50 years? That wasn't the only time they could sound a trumpet, but. What's that mean? You know, all these people. Maybe they'd be like, we do have fire drills. <laughs> I have Ram's horn drills. Having a Jubilee trumpet. <laughs> horn drills. Well, now you, you stop and think about something that only happens every 50 years. I mean, how many of those would you likely have in your lifetime? One, maybe two. Maybe one. You know, well, I don't know whether you'd have had it yet or not. You might well have. You know, it depends on the system. I mean, I mean, what if it was every every fifty years and we had it in the year two thousand? You know, and then we'd have another one in two thousand fifty. Well, I mean, you know, we some of you would have been pretty young in two thousand. You wouldn't remember it real well wouldn't probably have a lot of effect on you when you think about these things but you'll get another one some of you by the time you're 60 or 70 you know for me <laughs> well I'll have another one when I'm about 93 so uh, you know if, uh, if I live that long so it would hit you at different times of life but, but most everybody would have one in their lifetime even perhaps one in their adult lifetime if they live to be 70 or so Verse 11 and along with 1 through 7. What more 
speak out of Tom. Like, like obviously the fields still grow crops, even though they didn't plant them. Were they not allowed to go to the fields? Like it says, you can't go to the grapevines, the undressed grapevines. Like, why? Do they have to go and find it in the wild instead of going to the fields? That's more or less my position, is that they couldn't go to any of the cultivated things. You know, if they've got great, uh, they've got a great planting, and they've got other kinds of plantings. Now, I mean, if it's grapes, then you don't plant that every year. But you do, you planted it, you've cultivated it, you've cared for it, and so forth, and it's your, your, your great harvest, as opposed to just other things that grow up, more or less in the wild. That's the way it looks to me. I'm certainly not an expert on any of this stuff in, uh, in, in this, but that's that's the way it looks to me. So like with their fields and stuff, like obviously the fields would still grow the crop was in there from the lack of... They would grow some out of the seed that would have probably been turned under or whatever. Right. So were they not allowed to gather from that place and had to go somewhere else? That's what I think. Even though they didn't... That's what I think. But I'm not dogmatic about that at all. But that's the way it looks to me. <clears throat> okay, but like in verse 12, it says you shall eat its cups out of the field. Mm-hmm. That's not your field. That's like a wild field. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer. So. And like in uh, when we we're talking about the sabbatical year, didn't we say that you could eat it out of your field then? Well, I'm not so sure you can eat it. You know, I mean, I have a hard time with like um, verse five. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. So it looks to me like you're not allowed to eat things, you know, out of your cultivated areas. Okay, then in verse 6 says, all of you shall have the sabbatical products in the land for food. Right. Is there a difference between reaping and like gathering and just eat it. Could be. I mean, maybe maybe they're just thinking you can eat it as it comes, but you can't gather it and store it. Right. And that would be one possibility, perhaps. I've taken it more. You can't gather that stuff, but you can get other stuff that has grown up. But I, I you know, I don't. Uh, none of my views on this are uh, very solid. So. You aren't allowed to eat it out of somebody else's field, are you? Well, no. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, you could even in the law eat something out of somebody else's field if you were just passing through and you were grabbing and eating it on the way. Like the, there was also the, I think it was called glean something like that that uh, looked it for Naomi. Yeah, you could glean and get the, you know, after the harvesting had been done, you'd get the leftovers. But you could just actually go into somebody's field if you're traveling along and just grab something and eat it. That was allowed. That seems weird to us, doesn't it? Uh, but you could do that. Um, let's see, where is it that it says that? Uh, 23, Deuteronomy 23 and verse uh, 24. Deuteronomy 23, 24. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So you can go and grab something and eat it out of your neighbor's field. It would be stealing today, but because the law specifically said that, that was okay. It was really their way of avoiding having to have McDonald's. 
system. Well, not just welfare, almost convenience, I think, also in this case. It's also for the widows, they were yeah, but the widows and poor. Well, not to blame everything. Yeah, that's really a different thing, though, than this. That's true. They were supposed to leave some stuff for people to glean. But with the gleaning, that wasn't something where they just had to eat it on the spot. They could actually get it and put it in their basket and carry it home and store it. They were allowed to glean and actually, you know, sort of reap a minor crop. But with this provision, it's just a matter that, you know, you're hungry, you can stop by your neighbor's field and grab what you want as you, you know, that you eat right on the spot. A limited amount in the sense that you can't take it with you. You got to eat it right there. You got to take it only in your stomach. Fine. Yeah, that was a lot. You could have a picnic in your neighbor's field, but you couldn't carry any of it away. You couldn't glean with a sickle. You know, you couldn't. You couldn't harvest it. I mean, really, you stop and think about it. That is a really smart thing. I mean, that's a great law because you got a big field of crops. You're not going to miss somebody coming along and grabbing a couple ears of corn or a handful of grapes. And they don't have to carry food with them or stop by the fast food place or whatever. They can just go and get it. You know, it's not going to make much difference and it's really a convenience for them. Now, if you let them start grabbing it and carrying it home with them and so forth, that's going to be a problem. But that was just the way the law was written. That was a provision, a merciful provision. You know, there wasn't quite as strong a thought, in my judgment, you can, you can see what you think about this, and that'll particularly be true in this chapter. I don't think there was quite as strong a thought in the Old Testament of the absolute right to private property as there is for us. We are so strong on this idea. It's mine, and I can do whatever I want to with it. I earned it, and nobody else has any right to it. I don't think that's so strongly the way the Bible looks at it. You aren't allowed to steal. But there are some things that God instituted provisions where you had to leave things behind for the poor and the foreigner to gather. And things like this where you were not to consider it stealing if somebody got hungry and wanted to grab something out of your field to eat. And what we'll see in chapter 25, which are some pretty outrageous things from our perspective as to what they were supposed to do in the Jubilee year. You know, so, you know, God is a little more... You know, I, I, this is my land, this is my crops, and part of them I'm giving you to be generous with to others. There's not so much of an idea, this is your stuff, this is your land, you have the right over it. It's always, this is my crops, this is my land, this is my blessing, and part of this you're supposed to give away or allow people to come and get or whatever. Mark 2, that's exactly what they were doing. And the Pharisees don't say they're stealing. They say they're breaking the Sabbath. Nobody thought that was stealing. Everybody knew that was okay. You just couldn't do it on the Sabbath because after all, you know, you got to shut those ears and, you know, what think about it and, and actually pull it off the, the stalk. I mean, that's work, you know. Uh, so. That's not season. And they always mention the grain. I always think of wheat or something like that. We don't eat that 
in that corn, or oats, or anything, even corn. Field corn today that well, a little uh, spoiled, don't you think? <laughs> you know, they were real men back then. They could eat it. You know, they probably ate the cob too. <laughs> 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 That's right. Got any cob eaters in here? <laughs> I don't know. I've never read a thing about Harry Potter. So. All right. Other uh, questions on comments on whatever all we got into off of uh, this section through verse 12. Was this whole law like the law, like, are, like, for everybody, or was it in, like, a specific place, or, like, only? In Israel. That's it? Are there comments and questions? And they got this at, at Sinai. This was 40 years before they even went in. They didn't know that yet, but yes. <laughs> Theoretically, they're going to be going in in another year. But yes, these this law clearly didn't apply to the wilderness. You know. And they also didn't know before they left Egypt. <laughs> That's correct. Anything else? All right, look at some of the specific provisions. We'll read a fairly long section here. Really, we d we're going to divide this into some sections. And, and it's, it's really dealing with, like, right, what do you do in the Jubilee? And we're first going to look at a couple of sections on the property and what happens with property on the Jubilee. And then we're going to look at a section on the people and the, what, what the provisions for, were for the people for the Jubilee. So, 13 to 28. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale moreover to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of the years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price, and in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is the number of crops he is selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, so as to carry them out, that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce, that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year, if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth crops for three years. When you are sowing in the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when the crop comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor as to sell parts of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come back and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find uh, sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the year since his sale and refund the balance to the man who sold it and so return his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get, back, get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of his purser until the year of the Jubilee. There's a couple of things really that we're learning about here. The primary thing is what happens to land that's been sold at the Jubilee? Goes back to its first owner, original. Correct. 
at the Jubilee, all purchased land goes back to whoever was the original owner. Kept the land in the families that God had originally assigned it. And meant that, you know, you were not, you know, um, you did you didn't have like your land taken away from you and you had no land for more than the time up to the next jubilee that would provide maybe for more equivalence among people you know everybody ultimately gets their own plot of land you know to raise their own crops I mean it was an agriculturally oriented society it would stop the build up of power by just a few who you know grab up all this land you know, because at the Jubilee, whatever land they've grabbed up goes back to their original owners. Now what that means is, if you buy land, how much do you pay for it? Based on the years. Exactly. If you buy it 40 years before the Jubilee, you are essentially paying for 40 years worth of crops. If you buy it three years before the Jubilee, you're leasing it for three years, for three years' crop. It's really a long-term lease. You're paying not to actually own the land, but you're paying for the crop value of the land for however many years that lease essentially is before it goes back to its original owner. And they were supposed to do that fairly and honorably. Everybody knew the land goes back to its original owner at the Jubilee. And so nobody's supposed to take advantage of that. You don't sell the land for the price of actually selling the land. You sell it for the price of however many crops there'd be until the Jubilee year. That's the basic provision here. Let me give you a chance to react to that before we look at some other specifics. What comments and questions do you have on that basic provision of the Jubilee? So you're like given land, or you have land, and you're growing crops and stuff like that, trying to sell it, I would say, then they have to give you their crops for a certain... No. When you buy that land from somebody else, say you buy it 10 years before the Jubilee, you know you're going to give it back 10 years later. So you're only really buying the use of the land for 10 years. Okay, well then, can you lose your land? You You could lose it in the sense of like getting somebody to repossess it or to foreclose on it or something. So would you get it back then? You'd get it back at the Jubilee. So it's basically, it was basically like renting land. Mm-hmm. When you buy, bought land, you were more like renting it or leasing it because it had to go back to the original owner at the Jubilee. You didn't really sell land permanently. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a whole different concept than what we have. You know, there's tons of people today who have no land. They don't own any real estate at all. But according to this provision, every Israelite would at least one time in his life, if he lives a normal lifespan, have his plot of land. Well, how would he get it? Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's inherited. So they just keep getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> well, or bigger and bigger depending on whether you have children that survive or not. Yeah. Yes. I was going to ask more or less the same question. Um, we, have, we have, like, at the very beginning of the first one, we have where the tribes, where the land was uh, put off the tribes. Do we have that for families? 
because if not, how would they ever go about getting a certain amount of land? Because then you'd have the more powerful families having a lot more land, less powerful families having a little bit of land. The land was inside the tribe. Well, I mean, the land was divided up among families within the tribes. Now, I don't have a whole lot of information about that. We know, for example, that Caleb got a particular plot of land and and that sort of thing. Um, uh, so, I but I don't know all the details of that. But every family did get their own their own section of that but land. Caleb wasn't that special, though. Well, it was, but you know, every family would get you know, a certain amount of land. I mean, he got it for a particular reason, but he was in that tribe's land area. Tribe of Judah's land area. You inherited Right. And then once you inherited it, every 50 years, you got it back no matter what happened. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you say, doesn't does the land get small? does the land get smaller and smaller? But think about <laughs> it this way. Would we say that the number of Israelites continually grew from the time of the conquest until the exile? I don't know that that necessarily is the case. Maybe, but they went in with 600,000 men, and I'm not necessarily persuaded that at every period in their history they had that many. I mean, there were famines and wars and various things, and so I don't know that we ended up having buku million of Israelites in the land by the time of the exile. So we're thinking in this era where things keep multiplying, but if you look at the Israelite history overall, I'm not sure they had a whole lot more people at the time of the exile, maybe less. So, yeah, sometimes it might be subdivided more, sometimes it might be consolidated more. If, you know, it goes back to the, you know, children of your grandpa, because, you know, there's no surviving children of this family or whatever. When David expanded the borders of the kingdom, did that mean... I don't think so. When David expanded the borders of the kingdom, I don't believe they actually occupied that territory. It more or less, he received the tribute from those places. Do you have to sell your land? Sometimes you might have to sell your land. Why would that be? Money. Yeah, pay off your debts. Sometimes your land might almost be foreclosed on because you didn't have any money to pay off the debt. So you didn't have any money to eat on. So, yeah, sometimes just like for us, you know, you may be in a situation where you have to sell your property. So if you sold your land, then you could just, I mean, I guess it wouldn't be that bad because you just go to the neighbors and paste. <laughs> As long, I think Chris made a good point, though. What about in the winter? Yeah. So, but. Did it have to stay in your family? Because I was thinking of Naboth and his family. And how. That's a very good thing to think about. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. Naboth did not want to sell it. It's the family inheritance, the family possession. And. Ahab just bumps Naboth and his sons off, or actually Jezebel does, through false witnesses. So Ahab tries to possess the land, and Elijah was right there when he tried to. You know, that was not right. I mean, that was a power grab by a ruler that was not considered to be right. Now, the rulers sometimes did that, definitely. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't the right thing. It's interesting, we've been studying the end of Ezekiel, where one of the provisions in the kind of the time period of God restoring his blessing to the people is there wouldn't any longer be rulers who would take over lands that didn't belong to them. That was not right. There were a lot of things not right that happened. But it was not right. It was not allowed. What Ahab did was wrong.
is it possible that when they sold land, not because of debt, but because they wanted to sell land, that that did not revert back to them, but then that was now theirs, that they had the person. Um, when it was not a matter of debt, when it was not a matter where they did not have money, but they simply sold that portion of their land, would, in a situation like that, is it possible that that land would not revert back? No. That land would revert back. Yes. Yeah, I don't think there's any provision for the motive of selling as affecting the reverting back of the land. Now, there's a section we'll see in a minute that will give sort of some exceptions, but not on that basis. Even uh, the person was the man had no sons, and his daughters they couldn't marry, and then take that land with them to another tribe. It had to remain in that yeah. in their father's tribe. Mm -hmm. The daughters of Zelophehad or something like that. So, like, after the original owner got it back, does the person that they sold it to first, like, get it back after they get it? Or is he free to sell it to Okay, now wait a minute. I may have missed that from what you just said. When when the land goes back to the original owner... Then what does the original owner do? The original owner can do whatever he wants to with it. He lives on it. He uses it. Or maybe he ends up getting in debt again and he sells it again. And he sells it for another. You know, until the Jubilee, which probably is now going to apply to his heir, not to him, but... I'll pay you back in 49 years. Yeah. <laughs> get my land back and sell it again. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of not fair to... Because, I mean, say you lose your land and you're going you're gonna to get it back on the Jubilee. But then that guy ends up selling it before the jubilee, and then that guy has to just give up his land that he just bought. Mm -hmm. Doesn't he? That's kind of, I mean, that's kind of a little unfair. Well, it's not to be unfair because they know that. And so when they set the price, it's just the price of using the land until the jubilee. We do the same today with cars. Same thing. You go to a dealership and say, I want to buy this car. They say, well, we'll lease it to you, but you can lease a car. But you know going in that I'm going to pay you for this car. But at the end of five years, they get the car back. Because all you're doing is leasing it. And it's, a, it's the same thing. You think, well, man, that doesn't seem fair. Well, well, well since you're going to get the car back in five years, I'm only going to pay you this yeah. much for it. Whereas if I get to keep the car, it'd be like the land. If I get to keep the land, I'll give you more money. But you're going to get the land back, so I'm only going to give you... So it's pretty much just like borrowing. Something like that. It's almost like renting. A lease is like a long-term rent agreement. There's a lot of people that lease houses. It's pretty much the same thing. It's basically like paying. Sure. You agree to pay for it for so many years, but then when that time's up, you either have to... We do have things like this to some extent in our culture. Certainly long-term lease agreements on property. You know, it's very common for like a business to lease a property for, I don't know, 10 years or whatever. I don't know. But what do you think the punishment would be if somebody didn't tell? Like if somebody said, I will sell this to you. They should have known, because this is in the law. Nobody sells their land in perpetuity. It's only till the Jubilee. That's a part of the law. 
So somebody who didn't know that hadn't read the law. Now, I don't know that this was always followed. In fact, I have an idea it wasn't from some of the things some of the prophets say. But this was God's, this was God's will. Well, let's see if... I mean, you can buy land, couldn't you? And then on the Jubilee, it's, it's still yours, right? No. You buy the land, it goes back to its original owner on the Jubilee if we follow what God says. Okay, say like... They, 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 you had inherited the land. Well, then, then it came to the, to the and would you still keep it then? Yeah, it's your land if you inherit it. Okay. Right. Yeah. See, this seems wrong to us a little bit, doesn't it? You know, because we want to think in terms of this inalienable right to our property. We bought it, it's mine. And, you know, we want to be able to accumulate wealth. <coughs> And property is a big thing in that, especially in an agricultural society. So really, this is a provision that's going to keep people from being so able to hoard up stuff and wealth and property. You know, this is really anti-greed. This is really a bit of a, an equality kind of a thing. It's going to keep down the upper class controlling all the means of of production, you know, because the means of production in, in this agricultural environment is the, land, is the land. So if you can't just hoard up land, then then this upper class of people who, you know, own nearly everything is eliminated. Everybody basically gets an opportunity to make a new start in their life, somewhere along the line. And one time or another, the slate's wiped clean. Particularly true when you look at some of the other provisions also in this. And, uh, you know, so so this is, I mean, we are in this excessively capitalistic mentality. You get anything you can from anybody, as long as it's legal, and you just accumulate all you can accumulate. And that's not exactly the mentality of this. Um, it's still fair. It's still just. You know, you don't deceive somebody. They already knew this is a lease agreement. But it is keeping down this idea that there can be a special elite class that pretty much controls everything. If they follow this provision, you can't do that. You will say that you have just inherited the land. It's yours. Are you allowed to like sell it for good? No. You can't. There's no way to sell this land for good by this. So the land always reverts back at the Jubilee. Yeah, verse 23 shall not be sold permanently. And the other point is, God says, the land's mine. Yes. That's why they can't do it. It's not their land anyway. How can they sell it permanently if they don't own it? It's God's land. He tells them what to do with it. It's like God holds the title to the property. <laughs> it's really his. What did happen when they died? They're, they're long it's just going to go back to somebody in their family? When they die, it goes to their heir. Okay. So what would happen if, uh, could you not want to have it, could you not, I guess you could say, rent or lease it to somebody else for less time than it would be to the Jubilee? Well, we see that here, sort of. Look at this in verse 25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then 
his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate, calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. So there's really three ways you can get your land back. You sell it, and you've got a, a relative who buys it back for you. Or you come into more means, and you end up having enough money to buy it back. Or, in the year of the Jubilee, you get it back anyway. It's like the Lord is your near relative who's liberating the property and returning it back to you. Uh, the question. Uh, when, they, when the original owner sells his land, the value is based on how many harvests there are to the Jubilee. Um, when the kinsman then comes back two harvests later, what is the price? They adjust the price based upon the harvest of June, yes. even though it's going back to the original owner. Yes. They don't have to pay the same sum. No. I think you see that especially from 27. This is in the case of the man himself gets enough money, but it's the same principle. All this is to be handled with justice. And so, you know, if it's a few years later, then obviously the, the price is reduced because you're just buying the land, you know, for, for a, a, a less number of years before it would revert back anyway. And so the bank still got what he paid for. This is just, it's just not unrestricted accumulation of private property, but it's still just. What would happen if they took your land a day before the Jubilee? Would you get it back the next day? You would get it back the next day. Wouldn't be very smart. And the thing is, too, like the person who has bought the land or whatever, he still has his own land. It's not like you're taking away all of his land. Right. Like, I mean, you, he gives away the land that he bought, but he's still got his own land. Yeah. I mean, there are probably things like that. I know you, there are rental agreements on land, even agricultural land. There may even be lease agreements, probably are, where you may lease the land for so many years. You know, that would perhaps would be particularly true if, like, it was a, a, a type of a crop that wasn't planted every year. You wouldn't want to plant strawberries on the land and run the risk of losing that land the next year. So you might have a, a lease agreement that guaranteed you'd have that land for so many years, you'd pay such and such a price, and then at the end of that time, either you come up with another lease agreement or it goes back to the owner. Do you know when they're going to take it back? Well, you know when the Jubilee is, yeah. Well, like, do you, I mean, so you can't pay your... You can't pay, you don't have enough money. So they're just going to come and do like as a surprise? No, no. You'd sell it. You'd sell it off to be able to pay your debts. That would be a common reason you'd sell the land. You owe money. You don't have any way to pay the debt. So you find a buyer for your land, a leaser for your land, and you sell it, pay off your debts. You know, so you need the money. And the person was willing to buy the use of the land for so many years. Could the person who buys it from you, um, could he sell it to somebody else? And then you would get it back, and then the person who first owned it get it back at Jubilee? As far as I, second guy that bought it? As far as I know. I'm not, I don't, I can't think of anything against that. <laughs> we may find something else later that is, but I can't think of anything against that. I'd say, yeah, because, I mean, if you, if you sell it, 
and they sell it. It's gotta go back to him, which has to go back to him. So whichever way it's getting around, it's gonna get back to him. Now, if uh, a kinsman redeemer or if the original owner has the money for it, does the man is the man who leased the property obligated to? I believe so. Back if they have the means to pay them. Yes, I believe so. That this sort of plays into probably the story of Boaz and Ruth, where there was some property in question that to marry Ruth, that property needed to be redeemed. And that's a complicated section into there. But I think this idea of redeeming the property as the kinsman is part of this whole deal with Boaz and Ruth. I'm not going to go into that. I haven't studied Ruth recently enough to give really intelligent statements about it anyway. But you might remember that when you're studying some of this idea of the redemption of property. Um, because that's, you know, that, that was, those two things were kind of linked together um, in, in that. All right, anything else through 28 and chapter 25? All right, here's a little section that uh, is a little sort of an exception. 29 to 34. Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from the sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it is not bought back for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to his purchaser through his generations. It does not revert back in the Jubilee. The houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert back in the Jubilee. As for the cities of Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for their houses in the cities which are their possession. What, therefore, belongs to the Levites may be redeemed, and a house sale in the jubilee of this possession reverts in the jubilee in the... Wait a second. And the house sale in the city of this possession reverts in the jubilee for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the sons of Israel. But pasture fields of their cities shall not be sold, for that is their perpetual possession. So... There is sort of an exception, and then some exceptions to the exception here. Um, this law about the reverting back of the property and the Jubilee year was basically an agricultural law. You've got houses inside walled cities. If you sold a house inside a walled city, you had a year to redeem it. That is, to buy it back. If within a year you don't do that, that house sale is final, permanent, doesn't go back in the Jubilee. Except, unwalled cities. If it's an unwalled city, then the house sale is equal to a land sale, and it goes back in the Jubilee. And another exception is the cities of the Levites. They go back in the Jubilee as well. So you've got several different issues here, but essentially that a house inside a walled city 
could be sold permanently. There was a one-year time period in which the owner, original owner could redeem it. And if he didn't, then the house sale was fine. Houses are different than, than land anyway. Stop and think about it. You know, land's always there. What can happen to a house? Fall apart. Yeah, it can fall apart. Or <laughs> can decay or it can burn or rot or whatever, you know, it does. You know, so a house may not be a very permanent thing anyway. You know, land is. So houses inside walled cities could be, be sold permanently. A house in an unwalled city is really just a part of the land area. So that's different. And the Levite situation was different since they didn't really have land areas per se. They had the 48 cities spread out through Israel. Comments and questions? Is it possible that this this right of redemption is not the same as the year of Jubilee? That the houses of the, the, the cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption. In other words, not necessarily that the house goes back to the Levites, but that they have forever to choose to buy it. But, but 33 also. you know, buy it back and or it reverts back in the year of Jubilee. Dane? Oh, I'm not sure. Okay. Alright, other comments and questions on this little section? So, I believe I couldn't sell their land. So if they got in debt? They couldn't sell their land. They couldn't sell their land. Okay. So what they do? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do if you've already sold your land and you're getting further debt? I don't know what you do, but you can't sell your land. Well, I was thinking at the end of Judges that one derelict priest was, you know, going to, you know, the highest offer, and you know, the guy with the most size. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Jonathan. Yeah. yeah. You could read it. 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 You could You know, I forgot to mention that. I'll talk about it. Good point. I just get my mind on one thing. Yeah, 18 to 22 is the other aspect of the land with this jubilee uh, thing, and that is that you're not allowed to sow or reap, and so God will bless them in the sixth year, just like he does for the sabbatical year. In the sixth year, though, this time, they reap enough for three years to tide them over for the sixth year, the you know, the year they got the crop, the sabbatical year, and the jubilee year. Because it's going to be the ninth year before they have a crop when they you had this 40, year 49 and 50 together. Yeah, good point. So what is the eighth year in verse 22? Um, that would be the jubilee year? The seventh would be the sabbatical, the eighth would be the... 
here's the way I think we're thinking of this. See if I can come up with this. We're thinking, what does it say? This, you sow in the fifth year and you reap in the sixth. Then you don't sow in the sixth to reap in the seventh. You don't sow in the seventh to reap in the eighth, but you do sow in the eighth then to reap in the ninth. You don't reap the next year. But that's what it says. So, so you would sow in the in the sabbatical year, in the, the every in the seventh year, you'd be planting to harvest. Yeah, I mean, it's just the way he's looking at it in this passage. I'm not saying this relates to calendar years necessarily. Right. But just that, you know, he's looking at this as you didn't sow in the 6th or 7th, you sow in the 8th. Does that mean they sow in the 8th, Jimmy? Well, I don't think he's looking at it that way. It's just the way he's counting up the years. <laughs> but how is that? The 8th year, I guess, would be the Jubilee year. And you're saying they sow in that year. Right, but he's—I I, don't—I think he's not thinking of it in terms of the year precisely, but just in terms of the sequence. That's the only way I can make sense out of twenty-two. There may be a better answer. But when you're sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. So he's looking at it as sowing in the eighth and reaping in the ninth. But you couldn't do that. That's what he says. <laughs> Something's lost in translation. Yeah, I thought, yeah, I'd, maybe so. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's a contradiction with the. You can't sow or reap in the Sabbath year or the Jubilee year, but he's still, you know, the way he's sequencing the years. You know, he's got the eighth and ninth. I think not. I think that's not the way he's thinking about it. Well, the eighth year is after two years that it's been idle. The eight, two years when you haven't sown. So that's not necessarily talking about the Jubilee year, but there's like the eighth year after Sabbath year. Yeah, more Maybe or less. Maybe not talking about the Jubilee year. The Jubilee that's, year would be an exception to verse 22. Um, but normally you, would, you wouldn't sow in, you, you wouldn't sow in the seventh, but in the eighth you could. But on the Jubilee year, you can't even do that. You have to wait till the ninth to sow. Yeah, whatever. Uh, you lost me and all that, but but I, I don't think he's saying you can do anything in the jubilee year. But he's saying you've got these two years that it's been idle, you haven't sown, and and then you sow at the end of that to reap in the next year. That may not be the way I would have chosen to say it, but I still think that's what it's got to mean something essentially. Then. Comments and questions? I have a comment back in verse 23. I forgot to make it. Um, but it says, it says in the latter half, if the land is mine, for you are but aliens and So you think he's talking about heaven here? Because he's talking about the land of Canaan, which, if they're sojourning in Canaan, where are they headed to? That's reasonable to me, right? I mean, even from Hebrews 11, it looks to me like the Hebrew writer is suggesting that the patriarchs were looking for more than just the land of Canaan. I mean, because he says that they're strangers and exiles on the earth in Hebrews 11, 13, 
and they're seeking a better country that is a heavenly one. Hebrews 11:16. So some concept of a heavenly inheritance where pilgrims on, and strangers on the earth, not just away from Canaan, seems to be even implied there in Hebrews 11. I agree. I mean, they didn't have as clear a concept as we do, but I mean, there are really several passages that seem to indicate that to me in the Old Testament. I don't know that that means Job had that, but I think probably from the time of patriarchs on among the Israelites, they had some concept of that. Uh, the way it looks to me. It's a Psalm 49:15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. And I think in the context there, Psalm 49:15 is difficult to explain without some concept of the resurrection. I, th- I think there are some passages that certainly, you know, I don't think it's real clear, but I think they do have some concept of all that. All right, other comments and questions. All right look at the next section which is really how the jubilee year impacts people there's another whole side of this jubilee year uh, and and the things they were supposed to do in it so we'll just go ahead and read this whole thing i think it's makes sense to do that 35 to 55 Now in case a countryman of yours becomes poor in his means with regard to your father, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usury interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver interest nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and be your God. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. You shall not rule over them with severity, but are to revere your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then, too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain an acquisition, and out of their families who are with you, whom you shall have produced in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves, but in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him, so to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemptive redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may, may redeem himself. He then with his purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall refund part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him. In proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount for his redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. 
Even if he is not redeemed by these men, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right. There's several different angles to this. First of all, in 35 to 38, it looks to me like you have some general statements about how they were to treat those who were poor among their countrymen. And how were they supposed to treat them? Provide for them, be generous with them, share with them, and not do what? Not to be cruel. Not to be cruel, not to be severe, not to use them for your own gain. Not to yeah. Not to take advantage of their poverty, not to uh, charge them interest, and so forth. Um, God had blessed them when they were needy in Egypt. So they were to take care of the needy uh, brothers among them. Again, the fate of your brother is more important than your making money. We really have a hard time with that concept, I think. The idea that I would give some of my hard-earned money to somebody else just because they need it seems almost wrong. You're supposed to get as much accumulation of wealth for you as you can. In our culture, in our way of looking at that. It's not God's way of looking at it. Certainly here, he doesn't see this as something where they're supposed to do that, but but they're supposed to sustain their poor countrymen. It's very, very similar to the statements that we see in the New Testament of the generosity that's supposed to occur among brothers in Christ, where they, you know, sell things even to provide for their needy brethren. It's We've got to get out of the concept that, you know, I am trying to accumulate for me. That's my primary thought. And get more into the concept that we need to accumulate for our brothers, to share with them. So that's, that's a a general statement in 35 to 38 of their relationship to their poor brethren. Do you have a thought or comment on that? You know how you mentioned um, about that you you don't have to give to the people? Like, what's your brand you should give most of it to yourself? Yeah, that's what people think. Yeah. Um, I think that I kind of think that you shouldn't I don't think you should just give people money and just say, okay, here's money, go on your way. Because, I mean, you, they could go and get, like, drugs or alcohol with it. I think you should, like, use it for a good purpose and go and buy food for them. And I think you should also possibly make it, make it so that they can get by and then maybe kind of try to make them pay back so that, I mean, they would... So they would kind of, well, I guess you don't have, really have to make them pay back. But like, <laughs> but like, I think you should give them what they need instead of just. Well, it's interesting that you expressed that. Why? Well, we, you said why to some extent. You know, sometimes it might depend on what we're looking at. Sometimes we think about somebody who's, you know, along the road begging or somebody who comes up that we don't even know it asks for money. You know, right here, I don't think we're thinking about that. We're thinking about somebody we do know, a, a poor countryman who is in need. 
you know, the question, what if it's a brother in Christ? You know, are they going to buy food or, dr- or drugs or alcohol with that? Well, not if it's a brother that we respect. I mean, that's not the question. I think it's kind of depends on if you know the person, like how they act around you and what you think of them and what kind of people they truly are. I think that kind of depends on Well, there's some truth to that. Because like in Second Thessalonians 3, if a man refuses to work, neither let him eat. So there's some evaluation of the worthiness of the person. But, the main consideration is the need. You know, now in case of a countryman of yours becomes, now in case a countryman of yours becomes poor, and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him, like a stranger or sojourner, that he may live with you. Take him in, and, and, and provide for him. He needs the help. We are too focused, I think, on trying to judge, eh, you know, has he ever done anything wrong in his life, you know, is he, you know, whatever. He said, he's poor, he needs help, take him in and help him. You know, um, and we're too quick, I think, to think, well, you know, he ought to pay me back. What if God gave to us that way? Well, okay, I'll give you, but you got to pay me back. You know, we who have received incredible generosity from the Lord ought not to be stingy about giving that generosity, huh? Um, you know, and that's what he says. That's exactly his point 38. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. You know, and were they all that worthy? <laughs> well, this stuff's not even ours anyway, so... That's exactly right. And we're not even ours. He's going to make that point. We're the Lord's servants. So, you know, we need to think of things differently. Um, it's, but, but again, you know, the thing that I get out of this whole chapter is we don't necessarily have all the right concepts in our culture about money and possessions and generosity and things like that. You know, I think that we need to rethink some of this stuff. This chapter is is not totally a uh, brief for capitalism and, and some of the ramifications of that. You know, this is a chapter that encourages, you know, taking care of the poor and providing for the needy and and not accumulating this, you know, huge amount and so forth. It's just, it's just looking at it differently and all the basis of what God has done for us and the fact that ourselves and our land or our property possessions belong to God. Of we shouldn't store up all of our goods That's exactly right. Yeah. I remember hearing a, a guy on a radio show express his attitude towards the poor when he sees them and, and he said that the thought that goes through his mind is but for the grace of God there go I. And I mean, you know, we, well, I don't think it's a thing to do probably by ourselves, but uh, good me, good, I mean, good grief. You know, we'd be right there in their shoes if it weren't for the way God ordered our lives. Amen. I think that's exactly right. And I think that oftentimes when we struggle with this, it's not only greed, it is pride. Because in our culture, you know, how well you do materially is a huge factor in what you think about yourself. 
you know, I mean, what kind of car you drive, what kind of house you have, you know, how much money you have stored away or whatever. That, those are the basic ingredients of being respected. And so pride is a big thing in it too. We often would make the point that God shows us mercy because we need it, not because we deserve it. Yes. Not in general, at least, no. But most. I it, know some things don't apply today like they did back then. But, I mean, I guess some of it should probably be. I don't think the Old Testament applies to people who are physical Israelites today at all. But those who claim to still be following the Old Testament ought to really follow it. But as far as I know, they generally don't in some of these things. Now look at the next section, starting in 39. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor that he sells himself, himself as a slave. So he sells himself to you as a slave. Now what are you supposed to do? Treat him how? As a hired man. Don't treat him with the harshness and severity of a slave. Treat him as an employee. And what other provisions are there? Year Jubilee, he goes back. He goes, he goes free. Near Jubilee. Um, and notice verse 42, the reasoning here, the basis for this, for they are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt, they are not to be sold in a slave sale. They're not your servants. They're my servants. So you got to treat them right, and you got to let them go in the year of the Jubilee, as God provides for that. Verse 43, Don't rule over him with severity. You must revere your God. Now, it was different with slaves that were not Israelites. They could treat them somewhat differently and they could be permanent slaves. But not a fellow Israelite, not a brother. Comments and questions through 46. I kind of think that there would be more and more and more um, Israelites then because if you were going to become a slave, you'd get off some. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. This is, Israelite is not a, for the most part, not a choice. It's, for the most part, who they were nationally. In verse 44, is he saying um, you can't have Israelite slaves who have hired servants, I guess? I mean, that's in the sense that they stay with you until Jubilee. Um, and in verse 44, he's saying that you can't have pagan slaves, you can't have foreign slaves. Or what is he saying in verse 44? Well, he's saying you can have. You can't have to be. Yes, yes. And they can be permanent slaves. You know, so you could actually buy and keep a slave from another nation. You can't do that with a fellow brother Israelite. And they don't go home. That's correct. They can be permanent slaves. But... 
they wiped out the people like they should. They should have been paying some land for one. And then they would have had foreign trade with other nations to buy these paying slaves if they had wiped them out like they should have. So how would they have gone about acquiring these slaves if they had followed what the Lord told them to do? Well, maybe there's more than one way, although... Um, what about like Deuteronomy 20 when it was a faraway nation and you were allowed to kill it but they were allowed in verse 15 to keep the women and the children all the spoil for themselves that would be one way they'd acquire foreign slaves Deuteronomy 20 14 Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, but right. Even male slaves. Right. Uh-huh. So. But they could only do that if the nations are far away, and not nations that actually lived in the land. Well, they were really supposed to exterminate the nations who lived in the land. That was what they were supposed to do with them. Did yeah. the slave have to do like whatever they told them to? Yep. That's why they're called slaves. <laughs> 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 they have a history of... Uh, Family strife, as far as selling each other into slavery, you know, you know, like Joseph. <laughs> yeah. The history of meanness. Now, you look on in 47, what if a foreigner buys an Israelite? God's laws apply even in that situation. There's a right of redemption by his family members or by himself. Um, and there is, he, he goes free in the year of the Jubilee. So a foreigner could not buy an Israelite uh, without following these procedures. God regulates even how the foreigners can treat his people. And again, verse 55, for the sons of Israel are my servants. <laughs> you know, I, he wouldn't allow a foreigner to just come and buy an Israelite without a redemption right and without the slave going free, the Israelite slave going free at the year of Jubilee. Comments and questions? So the rules of family redemption only apply to the foreigner who bought the Israelite and not with the Israelite bought the Israelite. You have 48 where family redeems the one that has been bought. Uh, 48 49. Does that, does that only apply to when a foreigner No, I assume that an Israelite also had to follow that. I don't know that that's specified here, but surely an Israelite would not be able to, you know, hold out and not allow the slave or a family member to redeem him. All right. Anything else on chapter 25? I have one more thing, but I'll let you comment before I give that. Um, if we have so many questions about this and we don't even have to follow it, like, how did they figure it all out? Well, we haven't done bad in answering our questions. 
she doing worse? <laughs> so do you need to go there? Or Too bad in answering our questions. And part of it, I think, is our culture. Right. We see it differently because we're Americans. It's yeah. Even today, other countries would see this differently. Well, it's the same with all the laws. I mean, the laws of the sacrifices, the animals, and the locations. And, you know, to us, a lot of that stuff doesn't make a lot of sense either. Right. And they have the uh, they have the author there to, to ask about it if they <laughs> had questions. Well, imagine if you took the laws in our nation and stored them in a box and got them out a couple thousand years later, there'd be a whole lot more confusion. I have some confusion even now about them. (laughs) (laughs) And if we didn't, Debbie wouldn't have a job. (laughs) Now look at this. Look at Isaiah 61. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and so forth. Now, this is a messianic prophecy about the Spirit of the Lord being on Christ. But look at what he's saying he's anointed him to do. To bring good news to the afflicted, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now what, what year is that? Is that not saying that Jesus is going to come and provide a great jubilee year? He's going to come and free the people from their slavery. He's going to be the great redeemer who is going to give a a jubilee. And then you look over in Luke 4 and that passage is is cited. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in a synagogue in Nazareth. He receives uh, the book of Isaiah the prophet and he reads in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is the one who provides the ultimate jubilee. Comments and questions. That's why that song, Days of Elijah, mentions it. Mm-hmm. The year of the great release of from slavery, the redemption. I wonder if Jesus came in the 50th year. I don't know that. That would be cool, though. <laughs> I mean, what, of course, I don't know came, like, that'd be the year he died, or the year he's born, or whatever, but but yeah <laughs> well it was 0 BC so yeah 0.50 <laughs> I have a question okay. 
can you, um, if you're a slave, didn't you go out in seven years? Yes. Seven years from the time that you became a slave? I think so. Or in the Jubilee, whichever came first? I think so. Okay, explain that. Well, Exodus 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. So I take it that after six years, you had to free your Israelite slaves. And so I am assuming that you get bought as an Israelite slave, you go out after seven years, or at the Jubilee, whichever comes first. I don't know, though, that this provision in, I'm not sure about this, but I'm not sure that the provision in Exodus 21 would apply to a foreigner buying an Israelite. Perhaps the only provision that applied to him was the Jubilee. That's a good question. I was more ready for that. One of the few I've been ready for. Congratulations. That must be not take too much like Gary. That's not good. Right, it's 48th year, all the Israelites were traveling to foreign countries selling themselves. <laughs> but but they had to do it justly so they wouldn't make any money out of the sale much. Yeah, right. Whatever they were worth for a year. <laughs> you think they did? <laughs> well, I don't think they did much of any of this, but this is what they're supposed to do. Alright, other comments or questions on Leviticus 25. Okay, we've got about five minutes before we're going to take a break and have lunch. So let's go ahead and introduce chapter 26 a little bit. Um, th- we ended a section right here. This holiness section that goes from 17 to 25. Chapter 26 is a very fitting conclusion to this because it gives the blessings for keeping this covenant and the curses and punishments for not keeping it, for disobeying it. And he starts this out with a summary of what God asks. In 26.1, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So, he starts out with two important commands, two important principles of the covenant. In 26.1, what's he saying? And in 26.2, Yes, the faithful worship of God, keeping the Sabbath and reverencing his sanctuary. Those are two prime examples of faithfulness. The blessings and the curses are directly related to their relationship to God. You know, when they are idolatrous versus when they are respecting God and worshiping him properly. So that's kind of the basic command, the essence of it. And then he'll start saying, starting in verse 3, if you obey, and starting in verse 14, if you disobey. Then you might notice the relative length of the if you obey part from 3 to 13 versus the relative length of the if you disobey part, 14 to 39. Um, what do you notice? <laughs> yeah, wonder why. 
I say because he knew they were going to disobey. That's the part that's really going to apply, unfortunately. All right, that was just kind of an introduction to that, um, so I appreciate your listening to that. Probably be appropriate for us to uh, have a prayer at, at okay, for a prayer at this point. And-